This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is renowned journalist Antonio Cuneus, the Vatican ET connection. Did you know there are documented sightings in Rome going all the way back to 214 before Christ? Antonio Cuneus will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory. That means every single show we have done from the beginning, all in CD audio quality. A few bonus interviews, the very test private chat room, and the Manticore forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And I have to tell you once again, the hottest product that we have is the 8GB 
brushed metal cased USB drive containing all of season one and a lot of bonus material. So head on over to the website VeritasShow.com once again and click on the Veritas store to find out what else is included. It's a lot of information there. And now, get ready to find out how much the Vatican knows about extraterrestrial life. Is religion embracing science as it never has before? Did a Pope have a close encounter? What were famous painters witnessing when they included several UFOs in their paintings? Is religion ready to accept that we are not alone? Is faith embracing fact? To find out, don't go anywhere. Antonio Who Knows is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. right here on the very test show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like go over to our homepage veritasshow.com click on the guest look up the song and download it you can even buy the group's CDs in many cases right there at jamendo.com James Gilliland, and you're listening to Veritas. Open Minds investigative reporter J. Antonio Huneus has covered the UFO field from an international perspective for over 30 years. His articles have appeared in dozens of publications in the U.S., Latin America, Europe, and Japan. He was also the co-author of the Lawrence Rockefeller-funded UFO briefing document, The Best Available Evidence, and edited the book A Study Guide to UFOs, Psychic and Paranormal Phenomena in the USSR. Huneus studied French at the Sorbonne University in Paris and journalism at the University of Chile in Santiago in the 1970s. He has lectured at dozens of UFO conferences all over the world and has been interviewed by many media outlets, including the Washington Post, Discover, the Sci-Fi and History Channels, Nippon TV, etc. He received the Ufologist of the Year Award at the National UFO Conference in Miami Beach in 1990 and the Courage in Journalism Award at the X Conference in Gatesburg, Maryland in 2007 and directly from the new facilities of Open Minds Production in Phoenix, Arizona. I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, investigative reporter and editor of Open Minds Magazine, Antonio Huneus. Hello, Antonio. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. A pleasure to be here with you. It's my pleasure having you on. For the listeners, Antonio, let me just say that I met Antonio at the 2010 International UFO Congress uh, in Laughlin, Nevada recently, and I got to know how respected he is as an investigative reporter. And that's all you know, in the UFO circle, the skill is very important. Then, a few days ago, I saw Antonio present at a MUFON meeting, and I told him that I have been looking for someone who can discuss the Vatican extraterrestrial connection, and folks, we found him. But for the listeners around the world, Antonio, who may not know who you are, give us some background of yourself and how you get into this area of journalism. Right. Well, I'm a, I'm a science journalist by profession, 
and um, I studied uh, journalism at the University of Chile in Santiago back in the 70s. I had studied previously, uh, took a course on uh, French at the Sorbonne in Paris. And um, uh, of course, I was not uh, particularly interested in, in this phenomenon back then. Uh, I did cover mostly mainstream science. I did have a, a somewhat of an open mind um, with regards to other topics such as parapsychology or right. archaeological mysteries. So I wasn't like a really close-minded person. But I understand, you know, skeptics uh, because I was once there, you know. I mean, basically, I knew very little about the subject. And whenever uh, I was only peripherally aware of uh, UFOs, platillos voladores, as they call them back in those right. days in, in South America, sure. you know, flying saucers. And uh, I thought that the evidence was um, not good simply because I was a science journalist and I used to interview a lot of scientists. For my, I used to write at that time for um, a weekly magazine, a mainstream weekly magazine called Que Pasa, which would be sort of like a Newsweek here. And I also was writing a lot about, um, I was actually a pioneer on environmental subjects back then. And I was writing a column for a newspaper um, called La Segunda in Santiago. And um, uh, somehow all these scientists that I knew and I used to interview for these stories, you know, the subject of UFOs never came up. So I assumed that this was not a, a serious subject because scientists weren't talking about it. And this went on for a few years. Then I, I was already in the United States and we're now in the year of 1977. I was uh, living in New York City, and a series of coincidences, we could call them, or perhaps synchronicity or, or destiny, I don't know. They all happen at the same time. My brother sent me a series of, um, well, not a series, one first, and then later I got some others, uh, newspaper clippings about a very interesting UFO incident that took place uh, at that time in 1977, in the north of Chile, um, towards the interior of the city of Arica, near the borders with Peru and Bolivia. It's known as the Corporal Valdez case. Why did he send it to me? It, it, I don't know, because I wasn't interested in the subjects, but he did, he did do that. And at the same time I, that I, I received these clippings, and I'll go into the details of the incident in a second, uh, I happened to see um, an alternative newspaper, at a big uh, magazine store near where I lived at that time was the East Village in New York City in Manhattan. And this this newspaper was called the New York Daily Planet. Uh, you know, the Daily Planet, like as like in Superman. Superman. And um, yeah. it was an alternative paper. Um, and it covered, among other things, it had a UFO section. And I could tell right away that this paper was alternative. You know, I, you didn't need big connections or anything to get published there. And it was on the same day. Like I said, I received the clippings, and then I see this newspaper. So basically what I did is I, I adapted the, the, the story as I read it from the Chilean newspapers, and I wrote a, an English article. My English wasn't so good back then. I even had to get my neighbors and friends to help, him, help me a little bit with the grammar. But, you know, I, I, I was already a journalist, so I knew how to do an article. And I basically walked into the into the editorial offices, which happened to be in in my neighborhood in Union Square in in, in Manhattan. And I met the the publisher and editor in chief. His name is Mike Luckman. Uh, we became good friends, and uh, many many years later, he published a book called Alien Rock, 
which you might have heard of it, which is the the, the history of uh, UFOs and the rock and roll uh, industry, and you know the different oh, rock, yes. yeah, the different rock. In fact, I did even help him uh, help him on that book, but that's another story, and that's thirty years later. So anyway, I met Mike and I showed him the article and he was fascinated and he published it. And that's how my UFO career started. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this case. You might have heard of it. It's a quite well-known case. Um, so hold on. Before, before, before you tell us about the case, did this happen almost immediately? First, you get the story from, from somebody. Yeah, it all happened very quickly. The, 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 the case had happened in... Um, April 25th of 1977, I received, there was about a one-month delay in the publication because this was the days where there was a military dictatorship in Chile, you know, Pinochet. Mm -hmm. And so the the, the case was censored because it involved um, army personnel. But there was so much fuss about it that, and since it wasn't a political issue per se, you know, I mean, it had nothing to do with communism or whatever, and that was the issue for the military in Chile at the time, they, uh, and they were already censoring too many other aspects of the news, they figured they had to give somewhere something to the, to the media and to the public. So they finally allowed the publication of this case. And the articles were published uh, in many newspapers in Chile, but uh, the clippings I received were from El Mercurio, which was the number one newspaper in Chile, the most prestigious. Sure. This was not a tabloid. This was, would be like the New York Times or the Washington Post in the U.S. It's one of the oldest, the oldest paper in Chile and very prestigious. So the source was... It's the same newspaper that talked about Admiral Byrd's... Uh... It is the same one. Yes, correct. Right. Actually, it's an interesting newspaper because it is the oldest continuously published newspaper in, in, in the Spanish language in the world. Uh, it started in the 1820s. Of course, there are older papers, but they went out of business. This one started in the 1820s and it continues to this day. So it has, it has quite a track uh, record. So um, the articles were published, I forgot exactly when, let's say in June or something, and um, I wrote the story, and it came on the New York Daily Planet. I believe it was the July 4th issue of 1977. So it all this happened <laughs> quite fast. And, um, of course, you know, when you're a journalist, you cover all kinds of things. And uh, that doesn't mean that because you wrote an article about, um, I don't know, about, uh, you know, agriculture, that you're going to become a farmer, right? You're just a journalist. You wrote an article on agriculture, and then next day you're going to write an article about uh, fishing or something else, and you're not going to become a fisherman. But somehow there was something about this phenomenon that, that hooked me. And uh, I could have never uh, thought at the time that I was going to, you know, 40 years later, I'm going to be doing an interview about UFOs. You know, I mean, it, it would have not even occurred to me. But it, And it's interesting how, how you got the, the article and then saw the newspaper, made the connection, published the article exactly 30 years later after Roswell. Right. Which, of course, that's the other thing interesting. In 1977, Russell was not, was forgotten. When I began into ufology, and it's, I know it's very hard to believe to modern people, you know, to, right now, because Russell is so famous. But believe me, back in the, ni- in the 1970s, Russell was a non-case. You, you, at the most, you had to look very hard. And maybe you would find some book that described the, the 1947 wave in detail, and then it would just be dismissed as a balloon. 
Um, so I published that article. Now, let me tell you briefly the story because it is a fascinating case. And, um, and basically what, what happened was that you had a, a military patrol of, um, of uh, six soldiers, or I believe it was seven soldiers, and one corporal the cor- who was the leader of the patrol. The corporal was called uh, Armando Valdez. And they were camping on the high desert there near a small city called, uh, or a small town called Putre. And this happened at night. They were already sleeping, all of the soldiers except one who was uh, acting as the sentry. And this guy saw a, a light, an object, a lighted object coming down a hill there, and which seemed to either land or hovered very close to the ground, not far from the patrol. So they didn't know what it was. This was near the border. There was tension with uh, Peru and Bolivia at the time. Um, so he woke up the rest of the, of the, of the military and then, um, they all saw it. And then Valdez tells the soldiers that they should all stick together and don't go anywhere. And yet this is what he later told. He said he felt like a voice was communicating inside his brain and, and urging him to walk towards the object, even though he had just told the soldiers to stay all together. So he walks towards the object and he disappears. It's not clear that they exactly saw him disappear. It was at night, but they, he, they see him walking towards, and then he's gone. Uh, the soldiers are freaking out because their leader is gone. This object is hovering right next to them. They don't know what's going on. And about 20 minutes go by. And then uh, after the 20 minutes, they hear him, and he's behind them. But they never saw him walk from the object back into the patrol. So uh, Valdez is in a totally disheveled state, um, semi-conscious, and then he kind of passes, passes out. But this is the thing they notice, that, uh, as you know, I don't know if you were in the military, but in the military, you of course, you're supposed to shave every day, right? Uh, and uh, they notice that after the incident, he had the equivalent of more or less a five-day growth on, on his beard. Then he had a wristwatch with a calendar, and the wristwatch had stopped after the 20 minutes when he was gone, but the calendar, instead of April 25th, show May 1st. So it's, it's not a missing time, it's a kind of a gaining time. Somehow, the guy went into another reality or something, and he lived five days in, 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 in that reality, but would compress into only 15 or 20 minutes in ours. Almost like time travel. Yeah. We don't know what happened to him. Now, this is what makes this case quite unique in not only those circumstances, but then uh, finally the UFO takes off right before daybreak. So we never got a really complete description of how it looked. It was kind of disshaped and had these blinking lights and so on, but, but it took off before day. So they are all disoriented. They don't know what to do. Well, they decide to go back to their military unit. And as they're doing that, they find a guy whose name is Pedro Araneda, who was a school teacher. And this is in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. And yet this guy somehow was interested in UFOs. And not only that, he had a tape recorder with him. I mean, what are the chances of that, right? It was almost like it was all programmed. And Land. this guy made an interview, a famous, the famous Valdez tape. He interviewed all the witnesses literally an hour after the incident. That almost never happens. 
And uh, so that was the material that was basically used by El Mercurio and all the other newspapers. Uh, the um, Chilean army initially suppressed the story, um, but uh, since uh, the tape was not the property of the army, but of this guy, I guess copies had been, the press already had the transcript, and, 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 and eventually that was published. And the army never denied it. So definitely something something interesting happened. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my UFO career. I can see how you were hooked. I mean, this sounds like one of the best UFO cases I've ever heard. Yeah, we're probably going to have to to write it up one of these days in in in, in our magazine. And and then what happened is as I became involved. Uh, we're talking 1977, going into 1978, and then 1979. This was an extremely interesting window in, in ufology. There were a lot of fascinating things happening. In fact, the first UFO event that I ever went was the official hearing of UFOs at the United Nations. That was the first so-called UFO conference I ever, meant, I ever Is went Is that to. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I started in, in style, you know. I mean, and this, yes. this was an official hearing. I'm not talking of the lectures that other people later gave, including myself. There were like employee clubs at the UN, and many people did give talks. But these, especially in the period of the late 80s and 90s, but these were not official events. These were events for the UN staff, for the recreation, you know, like, like any big institution, they'll have like speakers. Like a high school in. club. Yeah, exactly. They were clubs. In fact, we do have, I wrote a big article, which will be coming on the third issue, about the, the true history of UFOs at the United Nations, because I was there. And I met, I met Dr. Heineck for the first time. I met Jacques Vallée, because they testified there. And, uh, of course, I met the Prime Minister of Grenada, uh, Sir Eric Gary. It was thanks to, the, to that little island of Grenada that this thing took place because um, Gary was... How so? Yeah, well, Gary was fascinated by this phenomenon because apparently something had happened in the island of which he was privy. And he made it his mission to bring the subject. And uh, people have to understand that uh, the UN works differently from, from other places it, any important subject has to be brought by a member nation. So you can write all the memos you want to the secretary general or whatever. He, he really cannot do anything. It has to be brought officially by a member state. And that's exactly what happened in 19, originally started in 1977 and then later in 78 when Gary, being the prime minister, when he comes to General Assembly, all the heads of states uh, usually the heads of state, sometimes the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, will give a speech, right? And you can say what you want. You are, you know, this is your, it's your statement. And Gary brought the subject of UFOs. And, uh, and then he did it again in 1978. And basically what he wanted was to create a, a small committee or department to investigate UFOs. And eventually a decision was passed, which is still in the books. But the problem is that there hasn't been any other country that has brought this forth. So, but at least there's something that was started that could be taken from there. Well, anyway, but that was only one of the elements. Then you had other factors going on in, the, in that period of the late 70s. You had um, the French space agency had just created the JEPAN, you know, a study group on UFOs, an official scientific study of UFOs, not to debunk, but to really find out what's going on, uh, run by a unit of the French space agency, very prestigious. 
Then you had, for the first time, the Freedom of Information Act was really beginning to bear fruit. And it was in 79, I believe, when the CIA and then later the FBI and the Pentagon, they released lots of documents. Now everybody talks about disclosure and how the... You know, all these different countries, the British and the French and the New Zealand and everybody's releasing documents. But and uh, but people forget to that actually the U.S. was the first country that released documents. Of course, they haven't released everything and they haven't released any hard evidence, but they did release documents back then in the 70s. And at that time, that was big news. It was all over the big newspapers and mainstream media because for the first time, now, ufologists could prove what they've been saying for years, you know, that the CIA was involved, that there were other government agencies other than Project Blue Book. But for years, they couldn't prove it, uh, except for, you know, some whistleblower or some testimony, but there was no documentary evidence. And in the 70s, that became possible. Now we had thousands of documents. So all these things were going on. So I think that that was a very uh, auspicious window, and that's why I, I became involved. You know, I mean, it was it was I, it, to me at that time it seemed like this was going somewhere. This was a legitimate issue. Just when I thought that I knew a lot about UFO history, Antonio Huneos comes along and fills my brain with more things that I didn't know about. So in the future, I'm gonna have to bring you back and do a a full show call UFO history because you're bringing new things that I, I bet a lot of the people in the audience didn't know. The UN, uh, for example, is one of them. Yeah, because I was there, you see. I mean, later, of course, I studied the history of UFOs going all the way back to not just the 40s, but even into ancient history, you know, and, and, and medieval times and the 18th century and so on. But at least beginning from the 70s, I, I was there. These were things that I had. It's not that I've read them in books or you know, on the web. I was personally there. And we always talk about Roswell, and a lot of people think that that was the very first crash that happened in the United States, but you know, we have to go back to 1897 or 98, I believe, the yeah, Aurora, Aurora incident Texas, in Texas. Right? Yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. And then we can go back all the way hundreds and hundreds of years ago and we'll talk about this because we'll be talking about the Vatican and I'll be asking Correct. you questions as to if you believe that the Vatican has, has made any interpretations of those paintings that we see where we can see what to us now look like UFOs, but back then they may call it, uh, you know, space chariots, if you will. Right. Yeah. They pay, in fact, that is one subject that I did a, a study, not, not just, we only have one of the paintings in the, in the current article of Open Minds on the cover story of the Open Minds magazine about the mm -hmm. Vatican. We do have one beautiful painting by Masolino de Panicale, who is a, a painter from the early, early Renaissance, early 15th century, which depicts uh, an event known as the Miracle of the Snow. Uh, so this is supposed to be a, a real event that happened, although it's, you know, of course, it's kind of legendary, but, uh, but uh, and it pertains to uh, something that happened during Pope Liberius around the year 400 or something like that, A.D., and uh, supposedly the story was that there was a rich couple who wanted to donate uh, land um, uh, to build a church. And they asked the Virgin Mary to give them a sign as to where this, what would be the appropriate location to do this. And then uh, it was said, according to the, to the story, to the legend, that it snowed. But it snowed only in one specific area, and it was in the middle of July, in the middle of summer, where there's obviously no snow. 
And that's exactly the scene that the painting depicts, where you can see the Pope and he's digging, and there's and then you see this formation of maybe kind of cloud-looking objects, but they all look like discs, and um, and then you know so. This, the speculation is, I mean, if you look at this incident from a, not from a religious point of view, but from an ufological point of view, is that what, what the so-called snow was not snow, but it, it was something which you probably heard, or I'm sure some of your listeners have, uh, known as angel hair. Right. Yeah, an angel hair is a kind of a gossamer material that gets spewed by some UFOs, and it looks like white. And um, but it's very unsubstantial, and usually as it as it hits the ground, it 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 it, it dissipates unless you very quickly put it in a jar and sealed it. And is it almost like a chemtrail or, or some of those fibers we've seen? It's a little bit kind of a chemtrail, correct? But it doesn't appear like in lines, like in chemtrail. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like threads. Yeah, like threads, and it was. It uh, doesn't get reported that often these days, but in back in the 50s uh, and 60s, there was uh, quite a number of those cases. Uh, there is a researcher with MUFON. I can't remember, recall his name right now, but he, this guy has made a whole study about uh, angel hair um, and, and you know, all the different historical cases. So this is what, what some ufologists have speculated, that that is what that painting is depicting. And that led to the construction of what's known as Santa Maria Maggiore, which is the second largest church in Rome, other than the Vatican. So right. that's one painting. But, of course, there are many, many others. And uh, they were, there are dozens of these paintings. Uh, and there, one of them I saw myself, which is the most uh, famous one, uh, the one about the, the Madonna with baby Jesus and baby St. John. I'm sure you've Absolutely. seen it. Yeah, which we even used on the, on the frontispiece of, the, of our, the UFO briefing document. You know, that project that was, was sponsored by Lawrence Rockefeller? That was the yes. one historical document we had because we thought it was so striking. And even though I already had written about it and I had slides and everything, I had never seen it. And finally, I had the luck in a trip to Italy to the to the famous San Marino Symposium, you know, in the Republic mm-hmm. of San Marino in central Italy in 2003, I believe it was. After that, I went to Florence I had, because that's where the painting is. I had been in Florence as a as a youth when I lived in in, in Europe when I, you know when I went to school in in the Sorbonne. But and I probably saw the painting actually, but I just don't remember it. You know, I was a young kid. I was seeing hundreds of fantastic art pieces, so I I don't have the faintest memory of it. But probably I might have seen it. But then I saw it again. Now knowing all I know, and it's it's fantastic. And re, and and it's you know there's such a difference between seeing the real painting and just seeing a reproduction. Um, and, and and not only that, it's so well preserved. And this for for those viewers uh, or those listeners that haven't seen, I'm sure they can find it on on the web in various pages. But it it it's it's a Madonna with the two babies, right? Jesus and Saint John. And then this kind of a sideshow, you see a shepherd and the dog. My favorite detail is the dog, because the dog is also looking at this kind of yep. lenticular object with a sort of a halo, and it's clearly a UFO. I mean, that one, there are other paintings that can be interpreted perhaps as a meteor or some astronomical phenomena or aurora borealis or whatever, but not that one. That one is so UFO-like. 
And folks, I did see that. I, in, back in 2002, I was in Florence. And of course, you know, a fan of UFOs. I just couldn't help myself. Seeing that and seeing the shepherd and the dog looking up. What, does, what is the painter telling us, Antonio? Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, unlike the one that I just described, The Miracle of the Snow, this is not uh, based uh, that we know on any specific, uh, because it's not even the, the, the Star of Bethlehem, you know, the, 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 the kids are already born and everything, so it's not a manger scene. Uh, my speculation, there's even like various... Um, uh, not even not, not there's even different historians give even different names for the painter. Originally, I thought it was Filippo Lippi, who's a well known from the painter from the Renaissance. Later, the name of Girlandao was given, and, um, and now there's one called Miller, Del Tondo Miller. So there's even different names. Of course, in those days, you know, especially this changed later in the 16th century, but. Back in the early days, painters wouldn't sign their things, and they had workshops. So different people could have worked on the painting. My speculation is that some of these is probably the painter himself saw saw something, and then they would use the, the a religious subject to kind of put it in there as a sort of, a, like I said, as a sort of a little sideshow and, and get away with it because in a religious painting, you're, you're depicting already angels and other, other you know, uh, spiritual subjects, so you just... Otherwise, th- th- they would be ending up like Giordano Bruno. Yeah. Yeah, because Giordano Bruno was not subtle. <laughs> Giordano Bruno uh, wrote a whole book about the plurality of worlds uh, and, uh, and of course, was a, was a fierce advocate of the Copernican uh, Revolution, uh, you know, be, uh, saying that basically the you know the the sun is the center of the solar system, but he heliocentric, went, right, right? But Copernicus only talked about the solar system. He never talked about whether there were inhabited worlds. Uh, Bruno was the first one. Bruno was the first guy who actually wrote a book. There were some references before, going even back to the Greeks. Uh, there had been other philosophers and and thinkers who had you know thought that there must be life out there. But the first guy who actually wrote a whole book about the plurality of worlds and inhabited worlds was Giordano Bruno. But it has to be, though, clarified, as I put it in the, in the article, that it was not the main reason, though, of, of, of him being burned by the Inquisition. He was, he was a very independent thinker, nonconformist, and uh, he ran into trouble not just with the Catholic Church, but wherever he went, he first had to get out of Italy because the Inquisition was, was inquiring into his thinking and his affairs. So he went to Geneva, where the Calvinists were, and then he got in big trouble with them, so he had to leave Geneva. So then he went to England, and then he got in trouble with the Anglicans, so he had to leave there. <laughs> then he went to Germany, got in trouble with the Lutherans. So it was unfortunate for him that he he lived at a time, you know, where there was no no tolerance for, you know, you had to conform to whatever the prevailing dogma was, and he was a very. What was it? What was he doing that was so controversial that he was expelled from every religion known in Europe at the time? He was a well. He was a very interesting thinker and um, and philosopher. He was a, a Dominican priest originally. Um, but he was questioning a lot of the dogma, and he also he was involved in hermetical or, or esoteric uh, subjects. So that would have been another reason that got him in trouble. And most of it, I guess he was not a diplomatic uh, type of person, you know. He would just say things the way he felt. 
and uh, which was it was a dangerous business. I mean, even Copernicus knew better. Copernicus was also a priest, but he he knew that his book was was counter to the dogma of the church, so he arranged for it to be published right upon almost when he died. Yeah. Yes. So he he did not have trouble because he died before you know the, of natural causes, but uh, of course Galileo, who was a very prominent scientist, yeah, he was pers- he was persecuted and prosecuted by the Inquisition. They didn't burn him because he was too famous and too well known, and he had also was had friendship with cardinals and all that. And he but he also had to recant uh, in order to save his life. Right, exactly. And he, he, of course, they didn't want to make him a martyr. No, right, because he, he was too famous. He was far more famous than, uh, than, uh, than Bruno at the time, uh, partly because he had perfected, not invented, but really perfected the telescope. And, uh, and this, this went on for, and this went on for, you know, this made him famous because he, he, uh, he was able to do the first accurate drawings of the, of the rings of Saturn and things like that. And, and it, was, it was considered, it was a great uh, moment in the history of science and the history of astronomy. But this... And later, le- later in the show, we'll be discussing more the life of uh, Giordano Bruno and, and Galileo, because I think they were instrumental in making the church more progressive to the church that we know today. Would you agree? Yeah, well, I think my main thesis in, in this article that I, that I wrote, uh, and I'm, it's not the only one, we've got a couple of other articles there by Daniel Sheehan and, and Jim Nichols, but mine, I guess, is, is the longest one, and the one that really gives the whole history, is that the Church did a big mistake in the Renaissance, because they, they, they took this, this uh, theory, which was basically the Ptolemy. Ptolemy was a Greek um, astronomer uh, from the time of the Roman Empire who wasn't even a Christian. And they made it a, a, a religious dogma out of a scientific issue, and it was it was a big mistake. It cost them big because, as as time progressed, you know, a lot of the science moved into the Protestant countries like England and Germany because they were more tolerant. And uh, so I think that this all these announcements and things that the the, the Jesuits have been putting out, the Jesuits uh, linked to the Vatican Observatory. They don't want to repeat that mistake. They know that this is the new frontier. Back in the 1500s, the new frontier was, you know, identifying the sun as the center, you know, the earth no longer the center of the universe and all that. Now we're long past that, you know. Now the new frontier is the existence of, of extraterrestrials. And, uh, and this time, I think the church does not want to be behind the train, but ahead. So they've, they've made this, this move. Uh, which uh, to me is quite significant. It starts, even though some people had made statements before, but it starts with this big article uh, in 2008 in the Vatican um, uh, Observatorio Observatorio Romano, Romano. which is the official newspaper of the Catholic Church and of the Vatican. So everything that is published there is scrutinized, you know, it's very careful. This is not just your, your neighborhood newspaper. No, it's the voice of the Vatican. It's the voice of the Vatican. So whatever is said there is the official voice of the Vatican. And so in 2008, they published this famous interview, well, later became famous, with uh, uh, Father Funes, who is from Argentina, a Jesuit and an astronomer, who had just recently been named the, the director of the Vatican Observatory. And the title of the article is The Extraterrestrial is My Brother. And uh, and not only that, in the beginning of the article, the before they get into the Q and A, and this is quoted in my story, um, they make kind of an, an editorial statement. 
that the existence of aliens it does not pose a threat to the Catholic dogma. I think there, which is extremely important. Yeah, because there are millions of Catholics. So this is, you know, if the Pope, uh, and we even have a picture in there in the magazine, right, of, of Funes, Father Funes with the Pope, uh, the Pope himself hasn't said anything, but let's say that he did. But even though these other institutions speak for him anyway, uh, if they come forth and they say, yes, this is, this is true, the aliens exist, and, you know, it's this, this millions of people would, would be affected by, by that statement. It, it would have a bigger impact than most other leaders of the world, excepting maybe the president of the United States or, you know, the president of some of the major countries. But other than that, the, the Catholic Church is a small country in terms of, of, of uh, physical territory, right? But and, and only a few... Influence. Yeah, but the influence is huge because they're Catholics everywhere and by the millions. Right. Do you know what the comments from the Pope were when he met with Funes about no. this? No. That was that was not. I, I Well, it might have had to do, there was something, in fact, one of the things the church has been trying to do is, is to kind of um, correct the mistakes from the past, you know, and then now they even have a statue of Galileo inside the Vatican. Yes. Yeah. So there was, well, in 1992, John Pope II Apologized. Yeah, John Paul. It started with John Paul with with an official reversal of the of the verdict, right? And uh, but then I think it was not have been two thousand and eight. I I don't remember right now. I would have to look into into my all my file that I have, which is quite extensive. Uh, there was something. There was some anniversary of Galileo or something, and there were a series of events. So it's and that's when they also unveiled this bust of Galileo inside the inside the Vatican City itself. So it might have been connected with that, or it maybe it was just a courtesy thing because he had just been uh, named, you know, the director of the Vatican Observatory. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 the picture comes from the Vatican Observatory website, but there was no no explanation, uh, no no caption other than saying that the, the director Funes was uh, meeting with the Pope. And since you specialize so much on the historic uh, historical aspects of uh, the Vatican, also, I, I want just to let the audience know. Uh, to give him a little bit of a background, there was a pope who became a bit more progressive than his predecessors and cave in to public pressure. And this is John after Hurt? Galileo. Exactly. Exactly. Tell us more. Take us back there, you know, when that happened and how, because I believe that's the turning point, point when the church really started embracing a little bit more science to pacify the masses who, who started listening to, to Bruno and to Galileo. Oh, well, well oh, no, no. Now you're talking about back historical. Yeah. Well, that has to yes. do with, uh, sure, with the counter-reformation and basically the Jesuits. The Jesuits was an order that was uh, founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, which was, his, was a Spanish right. priest. And uh, I guess he saw the writing on the wall, right? Why a lot of the intellectuals, especially, and the more of the progressive people in Europe were moving towards Protestantism. Because mm -hmm. the church, let's face it, even even uh, even the church itself ag uh, agrees to it now, had become corrupt, and uh, and had become uh, you know they had been so powerful for so many centuries that were just uh, they were kind of uh, out of control, and um, and so uh, Loyola proposed an, an an order that would be um, up to the times, you know, and it would among other things it would be very uh, scientifically uh, current. And so they, they, and that's why most of the priests who had been astronomers 
beginning in that period, are Jesuits. And uh, and so they became, well, they became so influential, the Jesuits eventually, and so powerful, that there was a big conspiracy in the 18th century, and the order was suppressed. I don't know if you know this. This is part of the history. No, I did not know that. Yes, there was the suppression of the Jesuits, which, uh, but they, they were not declared heretical, though. That's why they were, after a few years, after about 40 years, they were able to reconstitute themselves. It, it was more like a power play. It had a big impact among other places in 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 our countries in in Latin America, because uh, they not only the church was uh, the Jesuit order was suppressed, but the, the the priests were expelled out of the territory of the Spanish crown, which included uh, Latin America back then, and uh, and uh, this had a huge impact on education because at, up to that point the Jesuits were the main educators too and uh, this this was kind of a disaster in some countries like Paraguay which had was practically a Jesuit colony exactly and so but of course that that's a different subject but that's how important and influential they had become so around the 1820s they were allowed to to start again and uh, and then when the Vatican observatory was created oh, hold on but they, they they were allowed I mean to interrupt you but just before I forget they were allowed back if you will but is this why a Jesuit priest can never be a pope? Yeah, they have never been a pope. Yeah, with a Jesuit priest. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's written in writing, you know, but it's but it's a fact. Is it because they're science? Because they're scientists, and and they're the branch of the church that really embraces science more than the others. Yeah, and they're very extremely well educated. Also, what you have to understand that all these all these priests that I'm mentioning in the article, you know, Father Funes and uh, and um, Coin and um, and all the others, um, Corbali and uh, and so on. Even though they are scientists and they are real scientists, they're PhDs and they write, you know, papers and peer-reviewed journals and everything. But they're also, of course, being a Jesuit, you also are an expert in theology. You know theology, yes. you know philosophy, you know everything. And so that's what makes it interesting. Also, that some of these statements that that we quote in the article or the other day in my presentation. Even though they are written by scientists, but they also know their theology, and they're also dealing with the theological aspects of what what would entail, you know, to accept the, the existence of aliens. And and we have also some uh, background on on some of the uh, famous astronomers, Jesuit astronomers for, from from past centuries, you know, like uh, Father Kircher and um, Boscovich and so on. And many people, again, might be surprised to learn that the Catholic Church has experts in astronomy, cosmology, and yeah. planetary sciences, as well as one of the world's oldest astronomical research facilities in the world. Yeah, and probably most people don't know. And in fact, one of the one of their facilities is right here in Arizona, not far from where where you live. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And let's let's put a rumor to rest. One of the latest rumors that that uh, is circulating out there is that the Vatican has constructed a brand new high-tech telescope in Arizona that they named Lucifer. But it's actually not them. And just to let everybody know, the name is an acronym for Large Binocular Telescope Near Infrared Utility with Camera and Integral Field Unit for Extragalactic Research. Try to say that 10 times, right. Lucifer. But the Vatican's telescope is actually called VAT, the Vatican Correct. Advanced Technology Telescope. The other is a consortium of German and Italian scientists 
who built it. It has nothing to do with the Vatican. But that's a that's a rumor that's spreading out there, Antonio. Yeah, you know how rumors are. Once once they get out, you know, uh, even though sometimes a rumor may have some truth, other times it has no truth whatsoever. But once a rumor is out, it just spreads like wildfire. And especially yes. these days, you know, with the internet and emails and all that, it's it's it's. It, a rumor can can do a lot of damage. Yeah, most of these um, um, facilities, anyway, even even the one in Mount Graham, they are all they, and they, which is common with astronomical uh, facilities a- everywhere in the world. They're they're joint efforts too. So in this case, the Vatican has an agreement with the University of Arizona, which started in the 1980s. Originally, of course, back in the old old days, the original. Observatories were in the in the Vatican itself. There was one tower in the Vatican that was was an observatory. This is in the in the in the Renaissance, and um, then as as the city grew and all that, they moved to Castel Gandolfo, which is the the Pope's summer residence retreat, mm-hmm. which uh, retreat, which is outside Rome. Uh, at that time, I guess it was really in the countryside, and and that's where even today, that's where the headquarters of the Vatican Observatory is. But eventually, uh, and they got telescopes there and everything. But eventually, again, the you know what the astronomers call light pollution. Uh, right. That's why observatories always have to be built way outside cities, you know, because pollution will, I mean, light will city lights will just kill your observations. So in the 1980s, they made a, a, an agreement with the University of Arizona. I guess they were looking, and usually desert desert temperatures. Uh, are the best desert in the mountains. It's the same thing in North Chile. I've been in the in the fantastic observatories they have in northern Chile, which are run by the United States and by the Europeans, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, with agreement with the with the Chilean government. And it's, it's the same thing. It's in the Atacama Desert, at the right height, and uh, you you don't want to be too close to the ocean. You don't want to be too high. You don't want to be too low. It has to be. And usually the desert is the best because it doesn't rain, it's not overcast, Dry. and so on. That's right. And by the way, I find it a little bit ironic that, yes, the Lucifer Telescope is not part of the Vatican, but the fact that this consortium of Germans and Italians are right next to it right. with a telescope called Lucifer, what would they even call it that? Yeah, I know. Someone wasn't thinking, I think. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes institutions make dumb mistakes, you know, uh, which may be innocent, maybe not. But, I mean, it seems like justice is just an an astronomical device. I don't think there's any any deep conspiracy there. But with a name like that, it's understandable that people would would freak out. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I read, Antonio, that the Pope Benedict XVI is shutting down the observatory at Castel Gandolfo, essentially he's removing the telescopes to make room to receive diplomats. Have you heard that? Right. Yeah, because probably it's no good for as, as for, for observations. I mean, they did build some, uh, there were some important telescopes there at, brought at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but now Castel Gandolfo is, 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 is part of Rome, basically. You know, it's just a little bit outside Rome. So, uh, it's probably they, 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 the administrative offices, though, are still there, and I'm sure they will remain there because that's where their headquarters is. Sure. That's, um, they have a meteorite collection there. In fact, one of the guys that has made some interesting statements is um, Brother Guy Consolomagno, and mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's the curator of the meteorite collection. And he even wrote a little book about, about the, the 
significance of, of finding alien civilizations. And, and it's a great book. I read part of it. And, you know, a lot of people think that, that the fact that the Vatican has these observatories is a PR, a public relations move to, like I said before, to, to sound and look more progressive. But they are really looking for something. And this is the question in everybody's mind. What is it that they're looking for? And most of the times I get the same answer, Wormwood. What else are they looking for? And please define Wormwood for the audience. Well, Wormwood is a, is a name of a, of a celestial object that is in the book of Revelation, in the, in the, in the apocalypse. And uh, so it's usually connected with the end of the world where this, this big object will come. Like Nibiru or Planet X? Um, well, um, maybe it is. Uh, they don't. They don't um, necessarily identify it. As, uh, you know, as part of the solar system or anything. They just said that yeah, I, I. I don't have a Bible here in front of me, so I can. Sure. I, I bet I've heard the name, of course, for years. And uh, it's just it, it, as one of the many, many signs in the Book of Revelation, there is this thing that 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 then there will be this large celestial object called Wormwood. And uh, well, the Book of Revelation is written in Greek, so whatever the term is in in, in Greek, but in the English translation it comes as Wormwood. Um, then Nibiru is a much more recent, well, re- ancient and recent at the same time, right? I mean, of course, Sakharaya Sitchin. Yeah, the term, the term comes from the Sumerians and all that, but then right. it is thanks to Zachariah Sitchin that, that has brought attention to it. And Nibiru, of course, according to Zachariah Sitchin, uh, is this, this very large, actually, according to him, is a member of the solar system, but it has this very erratic um, orbit, and elliptical, it, it, yeah, elliptical orbit, and it comes every every thirty six hundred years, and each time, uh, and it has this race of beings there um, that were responsible for our our creation, not our entire Danaki. creation, but there was already like a kind of an ape man here on Earth, but uh, and he wasn't originally part of the solar system either, but he got captured by the gravity of the solar system at one time. And um, and then these beings basically combined their genes with the ape men that existed at the time, and that's where we came from. Uh, this is all according to Zachariah Sitchin, whom I know, by the way. I know him quite well. I haven't I haven't talked or seen him recently, but when I lived in New York, which I lived there for many many years, I knew Zachariah quite well. Back then, back in many years ago, when he wasn't that famous, and not that many people had yet read his books. But of course, Zachariah Sitchin's uh, uh, theories, although he's done fascinating research, you know, uh, it's, it's, that's still his interpretation of events. It hasn't been confirmed by other people. You know, his whole scenario, let's put it that way. I think there's definitely something to it uh, as far as his, all his texts about the creation of ancient man and this coming from the Sumerian tablets and how the, all these characters from um, Sumerian mythology, known as the Anunnaki, uh, are not just mythological beings, but extraterrestrials, is, is, is undoubtedly fascinating. I recently but, had him on the show, and he said something very interesting, that whenever he goes to a conference, people tell him, you know, how can you believe that? It's in a stone. How ancient can they be and, and uh, uh, not advanced enough? And he holds a, a very small tablet, 
with some of the, the writings, mm-hmm. and then he holds a piece of paper. And he says, which one do you think will pass the test of time? And all you need to do is look at that rock and know that they did that on purpose so that we can learn even after going through cataclysms and natural disasters. Yeah. Clay, clay tablets, right? Clay tablets. He, he also right. makes a, one great statement, too. Well, with paper would work as well, but even worse, when he makes a comparison with computer disks. God, right. I have stuff in computer disks from the late 80s, which I cannot even open with current computers. I mean, this is a, they're only like 15 years old or 20 years old, and they're already obsolete. Because the formatting and the you know the the software and everything has changed you know even physically you would have to go on eBay and buy some old computer or something just just to see exactly. those discs you know if you weren't lucky enough to print, printing them you know back then and uh, so yeah uh, you can go on an archaeological dig and find these clay tablets from four or five thousand years ago and, and they're perfect and, and you're right in in the 80s i mean this is only decades ago not thousands of years ago in the 80s we had the the big five and a quarter floppy yeah disc. remember the, the big of floppy course. ones. yeah I, yes. I still have in my storage boxes of those things they're totally, are you going to retrieve that information now they're unusable I mean, like I said, you would have to go into into eBay or something and buy an old computer and be and, and hope that it works and stuff. And hope that you'll be able and, to retrieve but it. You, I don't think you can even convert them now to You know, they wouldn't. Uh, an old computer could. I don't think it could even be converted. You would have to have like converted to another little bit more modern computer from that period and then take that one to another one and that one to another one. It would be crazy, you know. So it's almost like a like a disconnect between technology. You had the floppy drive now you have the cd drive then you can have dv drives and eventually it's always going to be a disconnect between decades but you'll because you'll n- never be able to to retrieve it but not only that if we get uh, and this is this is uh, diversing for a moment but if we get a, a coronal mass ejection that fries all our computer chips you know many people don't back up their their you know mm-hmm pictures and financial records, they're all in hard drive somewhere. All we need is a coronal mass ejection to completely wipe that out. Yeah. What are we going to do when that happens? I don't know. But if, 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 if we, yeah, if we turn off all the computer systems, it would, it would, um, that's why one of the things, and again, we're certainly digress, digress, digressing, you know, from the subject of UFOs, but, uh, but that's why uh, now the, the, the Pentagon and all the major armies of the world, they have cyber warfare, you know, and they have special units. It's one way of attacking a country. You want to, you, if, if you're going to go on with war with one country, if you turn off all their computer systems, they're in trouble. Their economy That's falls it. apart. Uh, even their army couldn't communicate with each other and so on. You know, it's, it's, it's a major problem. It's dependency on that. But we have to take our one and only intermission, Antonio. And before I let you go so you can take that break, folks, we have so much more to cover. This Vatican ET connection is so big that I want to really dive into it. And we want to be asking questions such as, why is the Vatican really interested in astronomy? And we couldn't find a better candidate to be on the Veritas show to discuss these things. But tell us more also about the new company you're working uh, for now, Open Minds. I have in front of me, I want to thank Alejandro Rojas for a couple of uh, magazines that he gave me a few days ago. I really have to say, I have never seen such a professional publication. Tell us more about what you're doing now and how to get in touch with all this great information, Antonio. 
Sure. Well, we are really a unique company. I don't think there have been, you know, um, people with means in the past. Uh, you know, we mentioned in my biography, Lawrence Rockefeller, who sponsored a, a, a number of projects and who lobbied for the UFO initiative, even to the White House back in the 90s. Of course, we have Robert Bigelow, you know, the aerospace tycoon, who created his own institute for research, and then was also involved with uh, funding, uh, you know, a special project with MUFON. And um, back in the old days, in the 80s, it was the, the Prince of Liechtenstein. He was also sponsoring things. So that's not new to have people, although not enough. Uh, I wish we, there were many more. But occasionally there's been the, the guy with resources that has funded research. But I, frankly, I don't know of anybody else who uh, created a UFO media company. And that's what we are. We are a UFO media, but we are totally independent. We're not owned by CNN or, you know, Fox or any of these things. We are, so nobody censors us. We run our own show. And we are basically um, creating a niche on every aspect of media. We have the, the beautiful magazine, which is already two issues out, which is a bi-monthly magazine called Open Minds. Of course, we have a comprehensive website, uh, and all you have to do is go to openminds.tv, and it's already becoming a massive uh, website, and we have lots of material there. Uh, it gets updated daily on the on the news headlines, and every every other day we have we have new stories. Uh, then we have uh, the radio show, Open Minds Radio, which Alejandro, my colleague Alejandro Rojas, does. Uh, which is once a week on um, on Mondays, but you don't have to. In well, that's on 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 real on normal radio on AM radio. You can listen it live if you live in the Phoenix area. But you can also go to our website, of course, and listen to it at any time. We have all the shows are posted there, and then we have also our TV department. Although we are not yet on broadcast, but you saw at that at this lecture that I gave the other day uh, the. The promo, right, of all our our future TV pilots, yes. and we have a very professional guy who used to work for Paramount called Tom Ruffin, and he's doing a great job. And uh, we're still in the more preliminary stage, although we do have some short uh, video uh, on the on our website. You can see already several video clips there of our interviews and so on. But eventually, we we, we hope to have a real TV show, you know, that will be broadcast in one of the networks. But we are still working on that. And so that's one aspect of every, you know, TV, radio, print, and magazine, and, uh, and website, of course. And then one more thing, we have the, um, the UFO conference. The UFO conference, right. which yeah, yeah, used to be the, the International UFO Congress, you know, held in Laughlin for many years, but, but which, by the way, did not start in Laughlin. People forget that Tucson. it actually started in Arizona. It started right. in Tucson uh, by Wendell Stevens back in, sure. and I, I was there. I actually did lecture for that conference back in 1991. 91. Yeah. So it started in Arizona, and the, I believe the first two or three events were in Arizona, and then it moved to, to Las Vegas first, and then eventually settled in Laughlin, 
and it, it was taken by the by the Brown family, of course, and they they did a great job, and it lasted it for I don't know 16 years there or something, and it even got nicknamed as the Laughlin Conference. But like I said, it did not start there, and we basically our company acquired it. And um, beginning next year, it goes back to Arizona, and it would be at Fort McDowell, uh, which is a suburb of, of Phoenix. And it would be at an Indian reservation, a casino hotel, a beautiful place, on uh, February 23rd to 27th. And, uh, of course, all this information you can find on our website. So that's what we have so far, and the way, and we're still, we're a very, we're a new company. I mean, we, I don't think we've been in existence for more than a year, um, less than a year. I've only been, I only moved to to uh, Phoenix in September, and when I moved, yeah, I was, of course, I was not the la- the the first one to be hired. Mauricio Bayata and Alejandro Rojas were already working here, but uh, but we were just getting started. Even the TV studio hadn't been finished when I moved in. It's a it's a true brain tag. It's it's really first of all, I'm looking at the magazine as I said before, and it reads like a book. It's it's so full of information, and the people who write are so reputable. And to me, I am proud to know that there's now an entity that consolidates all these respected, respectable people like you. Mauricio, Alejandro, and the rest, because it gives respect and more credence to this topic. Yeah, well, we're trying to, you see, we're, we're not, uh, of course, we're counting on every guy who's interested in, in ufology, you know, all the UFO buffs, and of course we want them, but that's still a small segment. So we yes. want to really go to the public, the, the, the big public at large, which we know is interested because uh, why is it that whenever the TV networks, uh, the cable ones, you know, like History or Discovery, why is it that whenever they have the sweep weeks, you know, when they do the... Ratings go through the roof. And why is it that when they have the sweep weeks, they do the UFO shows? It's no coincidence. I mean, every time they have sweeps, they go for the UFO shows. So there's obviously a demand for this kind of material. A lot of people don't want to admit it, but... I was just going to say, Antonio, the problem is that a lot of people are closet UFO fans. They just don't want people to know about it. Yeah, and and partly it's because probably nobody or very few people, I mean, certainly some of the TV productions are professional, but let's face it, a lot of the publications and the little newsletters and, and even the website, they're not very professionally done. So this also gives an excuse to people to say, well, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm kind of interested, but, but, but this is fringe, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is out there, you know, this is not mainstream. So we're, everything we do has a mainstream look. Of course, we are covering far out subjects, but in a, in a responsible way and in a professional way. And I think this is what we're trying to do. Great. And when we come back, I want to talk more about your experience with uh, Lawrence Rockefeller and your opinion also on the involvement that Robert Bigelow has had with MUFON. That's creating some waves out there, and I'd like to discuss that. But folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to cover with Antonio Juneos from Open Minds. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Michael Schrett, and you're listening to Veritas.